Well, good morning. Uh, this morning we're going to uh, introduce uh, the the book of Second Peter. Um, this is a it's a short book. It's only three chapters long. Uh, it uh, uh, it is probably one of the most. It was one of the most. Let's put it that way. Still is among some circles contested books of the New Testament. It and Jude. Um, wasn't accepted into the canon until the 4th century A.D. And we'll talk about that as, as we go along, what the, what the circumstances surrounding that uh, are. And, uh, uh, but uh, most, uh, most uh, conservative scholarship says it's probably the most, it and Jude are the most two neglected books, both by the pulpit and by scholarship uh, of the New Testament, that they just uh, kind of ignore these books, and I kind of wonder if it's because both of them have the same subject matter, false teachers. And so that may be a large part of why it's ignored. Uh, but at any rate, uh, that's the book we're going to be looking at this morning. And uh, we're going to just, we'll look at some of the text, but basically we're going to be looking at the, the history of the book, how it got into the text of, of Scripture, what, what it went through to get there, and uh, 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 some of the features of this book before we, we begin the exposition of it, which we'll start next week. Um, so at any rate, are there any uh, prayer requests uh, before we get going this morning? Well, let's let's open in prayer then. Father God, we uh, we thank you this morning. We thank you as we as we open your word, as we as we look into this book. We look into this book that 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 is written by the apostle Peter. He says so in the very beginning. He says, "Simon Peter, an apostle, a slave and an apostle of the Lord Jesus." And and Lord, we uh, we just ask that as as we study it, uh, Peter's intent will come through to us that we will know our salvation, that we will know who the false teachers are, and we will know how to live rightly in this world. Those are, those are the features that come through from this book. And Father, we just ask that, uh, uh, that you would open our eyes, you would open our minds, uh, you would make us receptive of the Holy Spirit's teaching as we, as we look into this book, and as we come to grips with this book, and we come to grip, grips with what your word tells us, warns us, directs us, and encourages us to do, that we might that we might serve Jesus all the better. And we would thank you in his name. Amen. Anyway, as we come to the book, Second Peter, like I said, along with, with Jude, are two of the most neglected books of the New Testament. Um, in fact, there are some homiletics profs that will warn their students, stay away from these books for a while. <laughs> don't, don't go here uh, right away. Uh, these, are not, these are hard books to preach from. And, uh, uh, but both of the epistles address uh, both of Peter's epistles, both 1 Peter and 2 Peter, apparently address the same audience. He doesn't say who the audience is in 2 Peter, uh, but the way he phrases things, it's, it's pretty obvious that he is, uh, he's addressing the same group of people. In First Peter, when he addressed the addressed them, he was he was speaking to the, and they're the churches of Asia Minor primarily. Um, those 
what would be in modern-day Turkey today, but Asia Minor in that day, it was called. Uh, and, and in First Peter, his theme was persecution from unbelievers. That, that was the theme that ran through that book, is that he, he wanted them to understand and to endure and to stand up under and hold the gospel up, uh, even, under, um, even under persecution. And in Second Peter, the focus is going to change because instead of talking about the external persecution brought on by unbelievers, here he's going to talk about the internal dangers of false teachers who corrupt doctrine, who could, who, excuse me, who corrupt lives. And that's, that's going to be his focus as he, as he comes into it, the danger of these teachers that would arise within the church. Paul in Acts 20, 30, he warned the Ephesian elders. One of his, one of his major warnings to the to the Ephesian elders was he talked about those who from among our own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples unto themselves, Acts, Acts 20.30. And, and that's, uh, that's going to be the focus that uh, Second Peter is going to take. Those that would arise from within the church to draw away disciples to themselves, uh, not honoring God in any way, and he's going to delineate those as we move through this. Uh, Peter is, is here is writing to warn the believers of the danger of these false teachers, their destructiveness uh, uh, to the faith of those believers. He's going to he's going to uh, he's going to he's going to encourage the believers to keep to, to keep careful watch on their personal lives and they're to pursue moral excellence. Those are those are the things he's going to encourage them to do, to live holy lives. Not unlike First Peter, where he told us, where one of the major themes of that book was, be ye holy for I am holy. Uh, the same the same idea is going to flow through this book, and he's going to he's going to contrast the lifestyle of the false false uh, teachers. He's going to he's going to call them. He's going to say of them that they are sensuous. They are they excuse me. They're arrogant. They're greedy and they're covetous. That's that's the kind of people they are. They're out for themselves. Is basically what he's going to say. They're out for what they can get out of it. Is is kind of the idea. He points out that the false teachers live as if they have no accountability before God, and that there is no judgment that they are going to face. In fact, they scoff at those those things. Uh, Peter reminds the believer that while God may be long suffering, He does in fact bring judgment, and He will bring that judgment. So he calls he calls the believers then to live godly godly to live a life of godliness of blamelessness and of steadfastness. Those are those are the features that are going to flow uh, through this book that Peter is going to try to to uh, to uh, to encourage us, as well as the believers of Asia Minor in that day, uh, to follow. He's got, now, as, as we get into the book, the, the very opening statement is, Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who receive the same kind of faith as ours, by, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Christ Jesus, and then he's going to go, and grace be multiplied to you, and, and that kind of thing. And, 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 and here he, he, he opens by identifying himself, first of all, as Simon Peter. 
That's that's what he says. This is one of the this is a, this phrase is not used in the New Testament a whole lot. Uh, he uses both his Hebrew given name and his Greek um, his Greek name given to him by Jesus, which he gave in Aramaic, which was Cephas, which means rock. Uh, uh, he uses both of those words. He was Simon Barjona, Simon, uh, son of Jonah, uh, at his birth, and when he met Jesus, Jesus gave him the name of Cephas or. Peter in Greek, which is uh, rock, John, uh, John 1, 40, 42. In Scripture, there are actually, there are actually eight Simons, just, uh, just to kind of give you an overview. It was a very common name. Uh, he identifies himself very carefully, I think, here to make sure you know that this Simon... This is the Simon that's speaking to you. The Simon that is also called Peter. The Simon is known in the New Testament as Peter the Rock. Uh, that's, that's the one who's writing. Uh, but in Matthew 10, 4, there's Simon the Zealot. In Matthew 13, 55, there's Simon the half-brother of the Lord. In Matthew 26, 6, there's Simon the leper. In, in, uh, in Luke 7, 36 through 50, we have Simon the Pharisee the one whom Jesus went to his house and ate with. Uh, then in, in uh, uh, John six forty seven we have Simon, the father of Judas Iscariot. And then in Acts 8, 9 through 24, we have Simon the magician. In Acts 9, 43, we have Simon the tanner, who uh, Peter stayed with uh, when he was in Joppa. And then we have Simon, Cephas, Peter, the rock. Who wrote this letter? That's that's the uh, that, that's the 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 uh, the list of Simons. Um, after becoming a disciple of Jesus, the name Simon is used in a couple of ways. It's it, it it's used in the in the Gospels uh, in a couple of ways. In the in the in the he, it's used as one just neutral. Uh, that was his name. Uh, he, it's referred to that way. It's referred to his, his, his Simon's mother-in-law, Simon's house, things like that. Those kind of those kind of usages. But more often than not, when Jesus used this name, he was emphasizing his 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 moral failure at the particular time. Uh, how he reverted back to his pre-discipleship self. Uh, places like. Like uh, when he, after Jesus restores him uh, in, Ma- in um, excuse me, uh, restores him in Acts uh, um, in Matthew eight twenty eight uh, and seven. Uh, that's the last time Jesus will call him Simon. Uh, but it's also used. Uh, it's used in in Matthew seventeen twenty twenty four. It's used in Luke uh, twenty two thirty one and a number of other places. But it's usually where 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 where, where uh, Peter has made a failure. Uh, one of the examples is when he's dealing with a tax collector who wants to collect the tax, and and he basically pipes up and speaks for Jesus and says Jesus will pay the tax, and and. Jesus kind of steps in and at that point calls him Simon. You know, you've overstepped your bounds was the idea here. He doesn't call him Peter at that time. So when he calls him Simon, generally it's because he is uh, messed up. It's, it's kind of his messed up name, I guess, uh, you could say. But Peter is the, is the acknowledged leader and, ex- and spokesman of the apostles. His name heads every list of the list of apostles, uh, Matthew 10, uh, 2 through 4, Mark 3, 16 through 19, Luke 6, uh, 13, 
13 through 16 and Acts 1 through one thirteen. However, when we come to this book, the authorship of Second Peter has been uh, been been questioned, perhaps more than any other New Testament book, and it's and it's it's largely because of a lack of external evidence. That's what the critics point to. They they say there's no external evidence. That's not true. But they say there is no external evidence. Uh, the epistle, the epistle was not uh, was not accepted into the canon of Scripture until the until several councils in the fourth century. Uh, the uh, the critics cite. Uh, the lack of references to Second Peter by the early church uh, fathers is evident that the book was not authentic. However, there is evidence from the second and third century that dispute the claims of critics, and we're going to talk about that just a little bit. Justin Martyr, who lived from 100 to 165 A.D., in his dialogue with Trifo, uh, 8.1, if you want to know where it is in his dialogue. <laughs> but at any rate, he alludes to 2 Peter 2.1. And also then he there's a, there's an interesting word that is used, and, and I'm going to see if I don't get tongue-tied when I say it, uh, but it's pseudodidectatos, which basically means false teacher. That's how it's used. However, the interesting thing is, there's only one place in Scripture this word is ever used, and it's here. And Justin Martyr quotes that very same word. There's only one place he got it from, Second Peter. That's where it came from. That's, that's the idea. Uh, so it suggests that he was quoting from, from, Second Peter, from Second Peter. Origen was first to attribute Second Peter to Peter, and he quoted the epistle in a, a number of times, um, which implies that the epistle was pretty well known. You don't quote something that nobody knows what you're talking about, is the idea that people would have known it. So they, it, was, it was well known at the time. It's included in the 3rd century Bormer Pariah... Uh, Papyrus. Papyrus. Uh, P72. Oh, by the way, I need to make a correction from last week. I said that the, the oldest fragment of the New Testament was, was P27. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. I didn't remember as well as I thought. It's P52. P27 is a fragment of Romans 8 and 9. I went home and looked it up because something said, you said that wrong. <laughs> but at any rate, but anyway, just so you know, I want to correct my mistake. P52 is the oldest. Oh, it's older than the Dead Sea Scrolls by a thousand years. <laughs> it was, it was, it's dated, it's, it's, it's dated, its date is, is 130 AD, which is basically 30 years after John died. Because okay. John died 99, 98 to 100 AD is when John died. We don't know the exact date. Yeah, there's no, there's, no, there's no document of antiquity that has anything closer. What, what passage of the Bible? I don't remember. But you can Google it now. Yeah, you can Google it. <laughs> I tried. Google does not like it. I, 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 I Googled it. P52, and they're like, do page man- something, something. Do manuscript. Yeah, do manuscript or Bible papyrus. Pa- papyrus P52. It'll come up. Okay, now I lost my place. Oh, uh, P72. P72. That's, that's the uh, Bowmeyer papyri. 
uh, along with a fourth-century Codex uh, Codex Sinaiticus, uh, uh, the Codex Vaticanus, and the Codex uh, Alexandrius from the fifth century, all include Second Peter. Incidentally, those uh, the Cyan those those three Codex are primary um, text for uh, translation work. The Vaticanus, of course, is kept in Rome in a cave. No one's allowed in unless they're a Catholic scholar, but they one time allowed some Protestants in. And you know what those sneaky guys did? They took pictures of all of it. That's what they did. So we've, they've got, so we've got it, <laughs> even though they, they try to hide it. But nevertheless, we've got it. But anyway, it's in all of those books. Apophrical books from the second century show a reliance on Second Peter. The Apophrica is books that are not not biblical. They're not they're not inspired books, but they are by writers who very often claimed to be uh, claimed to be uh, apostles or claimed to be authentic. Uh, but nevertheless, a lot of their writings uh, quote scripture. And they they are not completely. Some of them are completely heretical, but some of them are not. And they're 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 almost akin to commentaries today in some cases, uh, but not all. So don't you know? It's not a place you want to go to study. But uh, but it shows the second century. Which these books show a, a, a strong reliance on Second Peter. That Second Peter was well known in the second century, or they wouldn't be referring to it. Uh, the Epistle of Barnabas uh, comes from uh, has a has a has has a section that that is obviously uh, from Second Peter two twenty one, and it has another section from Second Peter three eighteen. The Shepherd of Hermes. Um, these are pretty famous documents from the second century is very similar in the in his wording to second peter 3 9 clement of rome who wrote a, who wrote at about the same time john was writing the book of revelation uh, somewhere between 95 and 100 ad uh, he, he follows second peter 3 4 as well as second peter 3 10 um, in in First Clement, which his first writing, uh, phases, phrases are found that are found nowhere else in extra biblical uh, writings, and they only come from and they're only and they're writings that are only found in First Peter. That's the only place they're found. Second Peter, excuse me. Yeah, thank you. Forgot which Peter I was on. Anyway, uh, Clement of Alexandria, who was Origen's teacher, wrote a commentary. He included a commentary on Second Peter, which would indicate that he considered Second Peter as a part of a canon. Uh, and this also kind of accepts that, uh, kind of, kind of makes us uh, uh, aware that uh, the epistle was a well-accepted book in the church in the first half of the second century. You know, we're talking about 150 A.D., so somewhere in there. Uh, it, was, it was a well-accepted book by that time. It's important to note that the same councils that accepted Second Peter in the 4th century, the Laodicean Council, uh, the Council at Hippo, and the Council at, Hart, uh, at Carthage, actually... In their deliberations at that time, because there were other books that they were looking at, there were seven other books that claimed to be written by Peter that they all rejected. 
But Second Peter, they did not. They 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 recognized that one. So these are kind of kind of the external evidences that critics claim, and, and you, you need to understand. I don't know how much any of you use commentaries, but you can get into commentaries that that. Uh, and if you get into the introductions, like I've got one of my commentaries, a guy goes on for twenty pages on this stuff. <laughs> I didn't figure you wanted to, to hear all of that. I got a headache. Uh, but at, at any rate, at any rate, the. Uh, the uh, uh, these critics of the of especially the 19th and t- early 20th century, uh, these guys, they first of all are unregenerate theologians. In other words, they're not saved. Uh, theolog- theology is their trade, but it's everything about it is to disprove. They do not believe in the inspiration of Scripture. They don't believe the Scripture was. Uh, <clears throat> is actually the word of God. They believe it is is a man instrument. They usually late date everything. They nothing they they don't Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter what it is. They late date everything. Um, and and uh, uh, they they try to use their alleged scholarship to show this kind of thing. Uh, but the fact of the matter is as time rolls on, scripture kind of proves itself. Yeah. Are they late dating things that have as much like textual evidence as this? I mean, if you've got somebody writing a commentary on it in like a hundred and they ignore it. Eighty, they're like, well, that was made up too. Like, I mean, at, like at what point can they stop? They don't. They don't. They don't stop. <laughs> at the same point that today's people who are trying to rewrite history stop, they don't. They just keep on. So is it just like a point of pride, or do you think it's like an actual kind of like concerted attack by the devil going, we're going to try to get rid of all the gospel type yes. writings, both? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they view themselves as super scholars. And you know, and they yeah, special revelation. Yeah, yeah. They just they well, they don't believe in in revelation at all. And so you know, they they just they're not believers. That's that's the bottom line. They're just non-believers. Anyway, the internal evidence starts with the opening words, which the author identifies himself as Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of of Christ Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 1, the author says, This is the second letter that I'm writing to you. And he refers to the Lord's prediction. He also, he makes these these personal comments where he he refers to the Lord's prediction concerning his death in in 1-4, which is identical to what Jesus tells him. Well, it's not identical, but it's, it's the same thing that Jesus tells him in John 18 through 19 that in his old days he would be stretched out, he would be martyred which indeed he was and he, he refers to that he believed that to be true uh, he states uh, that he was an eyewitness of the transfiguration in, and, um, in, in chapter 1 verses 16 and 18 he speaks of Paul as our beloved brother Paul which in that text he's basically saying he and Paul are equal, are equal as apostles uh, that's that's what he's pointing out there. He's also saying that Paul's writings are equal, uh, equally inspired scripture. Uh, they are scripture. He equates them to Old Testament scripture literally in that text. <clears throat> and uh, um, and what what is really interesting about all this is is here's here's another point on the critics. The critics claim that Second Peter wouldn't be written by Peter because there's too much personal information trying to prove Peter wrote it. The same critics claim 
Peter couldn't have written 1 Peter because there is no personal information. Does that tell you how they work? That's how they work. Some critics note that the writing style and language employed in 1 Peter and 2 Peter are different. That's true. And therefore, they were written by different authors. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter that Sylvanus, 1 Peter 5.12, helped him. Uh, The view is, and we talked about this last week, I believe, uh, the view is Sylvanus operated as Peter's secretary. Uh, He was a very educated man, and he probably cleaned up the Greek for him a little bit. You know, he kind of did what I have Michael do for me every week, is he goes through this stuff and looks for every typo, because I never see him. But, <laughs> right, uh, you know, he, he, he did that kind of stuff. You know, he, he did those those kind of things. And uh, he made sure the grammar was right, and, the you know, that, that kind of thing, that the punctuation was right, uh, that kind of stuff. He, he wasn't the writer of it. He wrote it. He, he just helped uh, Peter pin it under Peter's direction. Second Peter makes no reference, and the fact of the matter is Peter is in prison when this letter is being written. He's waiting execution uh, by Nero, and uh, this is this is his farewell letter in a very real sense. Uh, he uh, he uh, uh, doesn't have a secretary writing for him. He may have actually penned this one all by himself, and uh, it would look like this would look if Michael didn't review it for you. Uh, so, so uh, although I didn't make too many mistakes on this one, but I just saw one that I missed. Uh, but nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, it was a semicolon instead of a colon. But anyway, uh, but at any rate, uh, the idea here is that's that's the reasonable answer to this. Uh, Peter probably probably penned this by himself, or if he did have any help, it certainly wasn't Sylvanus. And he doesn't mention him, he doesn't mention anyone in the closing of this who was with him or helping him, and it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's probably uh, it's probably probably uh, uh, probably that is the real answer. It's also interesting that, that the book, there's these guys, you know, there are these guys, I don't do this, I read the guys who do, but uh, there are guys who actually count the words you know, and they look at all the words and all that kind of stuff, and that the uh, percentage, the percentage of common words in First and Second Peter is equal to the percentage of common words in First Timothy and Titus, and nobody argues that Paul wrote didn't write them. Well, there's critics that probably would try to, but but it's it's that's a given. And both were penned by Paul. So the idea, the idea here is that the language is close enough. The language is the same. It's not different. Uh, it's not written as well, but it's not different. Uh, that's, that's, that's the idea. The theme of the two books is different, which would also cause some difference in wording. First uh, Peter addresses those facing persecution. Second Peter uh, is a warning of false teachers. That's going to be the that's going to be the theme as we go through this book, especially sec, uh, the second chapter. Both of the letters address a number of the same teachings uh, while addressing different things. 
uh, it speaks of the well. I, it speaks of a number of things. Uh, for example, in in First Peter one ten through twelve, and in Second Peter one nineteen through twenty one, it speaks of the inspiration of the Old Testament. In First Peter. 1, 2, and in first, Second Peter 10, 1, the doctrine of election. In First Peter one twenty three, and in Second Peter 1, 4, the doctrine of the new birth. In Second, in First Peter two eleven through twelve, and Second Peter one through five nine, the need for holiness. In First Peter three nineteen, and Second Peter two four, uh, the destination of sinful angels that they're imprisoned. In 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 First uh, Peter three twenty and Second Peter two five, uh, we have God's protection of Noah and his family. In First Peter four two through four and in Second Peter two ten through twenty two, uh, we have statements about immorality and judgment. In in uh, in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, and in 2 Peter 3, 4 through 18, uh, we have the exhortation to Christian living, and then in 4, 11, and 3, in, in 1 Peter and 3, 18, in uh, <clears throat> 2 Peter, uh, we have the doxologies. Uh, so he follows a very similar pattern. He, follows, he, he has very similar subject matter. Um, and 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 that just shows a consistency. We uh, we have the lordship of Christ in First Peter one three and three fifteen, and and in Second Peter uh, one eight eleven and fourteen sixteen. Uh, one eight eleven fourteen and sixteen, and in, and, and in two twenty and in three eighteen. All these things are all all a part of these these letters. Uh, he he uh, is very careful to well not careful but he's he's very much uh, giving us the same ideas the same doctrinal statements he's just applying them to a different situation as we go through the two books as to the date and destination church tradi- tradition tells us that Peter was uh, martyred. Uh, near the end of Nero's life, and Nero died in, in um, 60 AD 68. Uh, that's when, when he, he died. Uh, so Peter was executed before that, uh, because Nero was the one that had him executed. Uh, so more than likely, <clears throat> it, places, uh, it places this book somewhere between 66 and 67 AD. That's probably about the time this book was written. Uh, the place of the in uh, uh, place uh, well, it could be as early as sixty five, so sixty five, sixty six, maybe sixty seven, more likely sixty six. I think is really when it was written. Uh, Peter was martyr, martyred outside Rome, and he likely wrote this letter while in prison, waiting that execution. He doesn't say that, but that's likely what happened. Peter doesn't name the destination of the letter, but he does state it's the second time to write to them. Second Peter three uh, three one. Uh, therefore, uh, we would consider the recipients of the letter the same the same group of people, those churches in Asia Minor uh, that he spoke of in First Peter one one. Uh, that's the same the same group of people it's going to. In First Peter, he wrote to. He, he wrote that letter uh, to comfort and instruct believers who were facing persecution. 
on this occasion, Peter really confronts a more dangerous uh, threat, and it's the threat of false teachers. And he's going to he's going to spend some time talking about false teachers, uh, the kind of people they are, and what they do. And you know, this is not th- that makes this that makes this book very important to us today uh, because. False teachers have been there since early on. If if Peter uh, Peter and Paul uh, both, who were writing in the in the late fifties, sixties, uh, and up to almost you know let's say sixty six, sixty seven, Peter uh, Paul probably wrote his final book, Second Timothy, around sixty eight A.D. about the time about that time, somewhere right about the time of of uh, of uh, uh, of uh, Nero's death. Uh, that's why some believe that this book is a little bit earlier, 65, 66, that Peter was probably executed before Paul was imprisoned. Uh, and Paul was there in late 66, 67, and maybe 68. So at any rate, um, that's when these guys wrote. And even then, we already had heretics in the church. We already had people trying to corrupt the, the teaching of the church. Of course, we Paul had confronted them uh, before the Judaizers on a number of occasions. He had done battle with them, uh, the, and and uh, now we and he had, he warned the Ephesian elders about those who would arise from within the very assembly themselves, teaching demons uh, or doctrines of demons. And you know, all you have to do is look around today. Uh, you can look around Bakersfield. Uh, there are a number of churches right now today who are gathering to meet, and a heretic's going to step in the pulpit. And he's going to teach false doctrine. And he's going to pontificate on that false doctrine. And, 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 and Peter is going to give us some identifying marks of those people. We've already talked about some of those. They're greedy, they're sensuous, they're arrogant, and they're all about themselves. The focus is on me. The focus is on the spotlight. That's that's the idea. Uh, that's that's what he's going to say about them. And, and th- these people are 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 dangerous. Uh, they're super dangerous to the faith of people, and they corrupt churches, and they corrupt people, and even they can even trick some people who are truly saved into following wrong doctrine. And, and, and corrupt their lives and, and hinder their growth. And, and while they may make it to heaven, they will have little reward. Um, those who taught them have another destination, however. And, and he's, that's the occasion here. It's, they've got to guard their lives. These so-called teachers are arising within the church, and the believers need to be alert and on guard against their lies. And, and that's, that's the goal of teaching is to bring every every believer to maturity in Christ. It's not just so I, I have something to do on Sunday morning. It's so that you know God better. And so I know God better. And we are closer to Him. And we know our Lord better. And we are not deceived by falsehood. That's, that's the key. That's the key to all of this. I've often said, this is my personal belief, the, uh, the teachers in the assembly are... Uh, our uh, uh, support staff to support you. You know, it's not an end in and to itself. Uh, that that's an important thing to remember. There are support staff here to support you. That's 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 what they're there for. 
in, in my view, at any rate. Don't mark, don't mark that down as heresy. I think it's correct. But at any, but at any rate, Peter does not name a specific heresy uh, which these would be spreading, but he does give a clear picture of the manner of life these deceivers live. And, you know, I think that's an important feature of this, because throughout the centuries, different heresies have arisen uh, in in Peter's, or in, uh, excuse me, in Paul's first writings on, on the people that were corrupting the church, it was the Judaizers. Uh, that's, that's who they were. They were the ones that were going in and saying, well, okay, Gent- okay Gentiles, you can be Christians, you can come to Christ, but you've got to be a Jew first. You know, you've got to follow all the Jewish rules and traditions, and then you can be a believer. Well, that was false doctrine. And then we come along and we, we have a bunch of persecution and we have the Roman emperor deciding that he is a, he is a god and that he wants everybody to bow to him. And basically your option is bow or die. And now you've got a choice to make. You know, and then along this whole line we have these other guys who come in and Peter talked about them in 1 Peter a little bit he basically said they would make merchandise of you literally is what he says and we have those that come in and they want in your pocketbook uh, we have those that come in and they're just looking for followers to worship them and they, we've had these guys today who basically then declare themselves to be God and they are the ones that John speaks of that we already have Antichrist among us today, with a small a. Uh, and so through the centuries, uh, these various things have developed. Uh, we had the whole Gnostic movement, which saw dualism, which still is around today. There are a lot of people that actually still have a dualistic view of Christianity. And there are a lot of churches that still think that way. Uh, they still hold to some of that Gnostic view. All the Eastern churches, that's where it came from, out of, out of the Eastern church. So a lot of the Orthodox, so-called Orthodox churches, whether it's Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Coptic, they all followed that, that Gnostic view of this dualism. And then we have the ones that, that denied, and, and within that, there were, the, there were the ones that denied Christ was human, and there were the other ones that denied Christ was God. Uh, we have all of those kind of things. And a lot of that is still around today. It's just put in a different wrapper. It's just put into a different wrapper. And so the, the key here, and what Peter is trying to do, is tell us how to distinguish those individuals. And then get away from them is is the idea is the idea that's going to that's going to permeate this book. He doesn't give a specific area, but his but his uh, but his but his but he has features of their teaching, and they include things like this. We've already talked about some of these, but they include things like this: denying the person of Christ, whether he was divine or or he was human. They'll, they'll argue those two things, one side or the other. Uh, they twist the scriptures, including Paul's writings. They, tr- they try to take them and make them mean something they don't mean. Uh, that's, that's basically what the, uh, a large part of what the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel has done. They have taken, they have taken the Isaiah passage, by his stripes you are healed, to, me- to mean that you are, you, if you have a cold, 
just have faith, it'll go away. Well, it'll go away in eight days. But, you know, uh, that, that's the bottom line. No matter what the problem is, if you have enough faith, you can be, it'll go, it'll go away because it's in the heat, it's in the, it's, they basically make it part of the atonement, which is heretical as all get out. But nevertheless, that's what they do. And they twist the scriptures. And then they have, he says they do it by having uh, cleverly devised tales. And he, in verse in, in chapter one, verse six, he calls them destructive heresies in two and in, in two one. And he points out that these false teachers very often mock the second coming and the coming judgment. You know, God is love, therefore, eventually everyone will be saved. Universal salvation. Uh, there is there is no accountability. There may be a minor one, but uh, in different different views, you know. But there is no there is no uh, there is no uh, uh, no uh, uh, no real judgment is is the idea that 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 comes from these people. We want to take that we want to take that out of our thinking altogether. That seems to be an idea that is currently permeating our legal system. You know, uh, oh. Uh, you murdered somebody? Well, you know, we'll just let you go home and wear a monitor. You're okay. That kind of idea. Or we're going to drop the charges. That kind of stuff. These people taught that. That's, that's the idea here. Their personal lives are marked by immorality. Uh, they live immoral lives. Uh, they despise authority. They're arrogant. They're vain. And they primarily seek material gain. I was, as we went through First Peter, I don't remember all of them now, but the uh, uh, we were the richest preachers in the world, five of them are Americans. The top one is Kenneth Copeland, three hundred million dollars. Really? That's that's uh, following Christ. Five of them, the five that really irritated me the most, all the Americans irritated me, but uh, the five that irritated me the most were the, were the five Nigerian pastors who were in that top ten. You just can't believe how they have raped those people in that country of their, of their financial resources. You know, it's, un- it's unbelievable. They're all, they're all heretics. Paul wants the believer to focus on godly behavior. He therefore provides the contrast that that distinguishes the heretical teacher that would infiltrate the church. He points, his point is not to rebuke false teachers, but to warn and arm believers when faced by them. The warning describes their characteristics, which are common with all false teachers in Peter's day, and as I just said, in our day today. The basic theme that runs through Second Peter is knowledge and practice of truth versus falsehood. Wrong doctrine can never produce right living. That's, that's, that's the bottom line here. I, the outline I wrote is probably not going to be the teaching outline. It's, it's, uh, I basically uh, borrowed this outline from somebody else, but I thought it kind of captured the, uh, the flow of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the text. Chapter 1 is about creating Christian character. It's about growth in Christ. It's grounds, grounds of belief. Uh, chapter 2 deals with 
deals with the condemnation of the false teacher. It speaks of the danger of the false teacher. It talks of their destruction. And it gives this this description, uh, several verses, 2.10 through 22. He talks about the description of false teachers. And then he... he uh, because one of the things they do is mock the second coming of Christ and mock judgment, uh, he, he develops the third chapter around our confidence in the fact that Christ is coming again. Uh, he, he speaks of the mockery in the last days. He, he talks about the Lord's day, the manifestation of the Lord's day, what that will be like. And then he talks about being mature in our view of the Lord's day in 11 through 18. Those are very important passages where he, where he, he, he builds up the believer in those ideas. Uh, in, in chapter 3, verses 5 through 13, uh, Peter does a, a, an interesting, he does probably one of the most descriptive uh, uh, verses there is that speaks, that takes us from creation to the new the new, uh, the new uh, heavens and the new earth. In, in 3.15, Peter starts out with creation of the present, present heavens and the earth. He goes to the, di- to the dissolving of the universe, and then he speaks of the new, the new heavens and the new earth. He goes through the whole thing in those verses in, in 15 through 13. <clears throat> it, some of the words that are used in these verses uh, is, is that... In 1 Peter, the primary word was suffering. In 2 Peter, the primary word is knowledge and its derivatives, uh, no other things. In both books, it's interesting, in both books, suffering is used, well, not in both books. In 1 Peter, suffering is used 16 times. In 2 Peter, knowledge is used 16 times. Those words repeat themselves over and over again. So this book is about knowing. Knowing your Lord, knowing what is coming, and knowing those who would try to deceive you. Those are, those are the features that, that, uh, that Peter is going to emphasize in this book. 1 Peter, respond, how we're going to respond to external opposition. 2 Peter is how we deal with internal opposition, which is caused by false teachers. That's pretty much the book. That's pretty much what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. I hope you enjoy the ride. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. I got done a little bit early today. Too bad it's not a choir day. They wouldn't be trying to kick me out. But anyway, (laughs) I've still had two minutes when they were trying to throw me out. (laughs) But that's okay. That's okay. Any questions or comments this morning? Yeah. I just want to say thanks for, um, in your notes, even just highlighting the fact that it starts out with Simon Peter, because it made me look back at First Peter, which it just says Peter, an apostle. Yeah. But Simon Peter is his more rounded name, and we know he was the apostle to the Jews primarily. We know he was rebuked by Paul for, you know, in Galatians. Going to the Jewish table. Yes. Trying to put up with those Judaizers. Yeah, he compromised. And, and I, it just makes me wonder if it's just like a sense of his own personal growth. Because this one's written to um, to those who have obtained like precious faith rather than to the diaspora. You know, yeah. the, the other one's more Jewish focused. Now it seems like his whole life is really enlarged to include the greater... You know, you may have a good point there. And, and I, I, my thought was, yeah. 
the Holy Spirit probably knew this book was going to be challenged, and he he made it a little more clear. Yeah. Simon Peter, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's Incidentally, the false teachers. Yeah. If he himself had accidentally, or you know, been caught up a little bit and persuaded not to act like a Christian yeah. due to them. So I just thought that was creepy. Acts 15 is the last place the name Simon is ever used of him. It, there, it says Simon there. It's used in a neutral sense, but it's that's that's how it's that's how it used. I think it's verse 14. I forgot now, but I think it's verse 14. But uh, at, any, at any rate, uh, yeah, that's the last place the name Simon is is ever used in the New Testament for him. So anyway, well, other than where he calls himself Simon in, in Second Peter, is that when Paul called him out? Is that the, what's happening in the verse? No. Acts 15, it's, it's, it, has to, it has to do with the Jerusalem Council. I forgot the specific circumstance of Acts 15, 14, but at any rate, uh, you, can, you can read it. <laughs> Let's close. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this study. We thank you for, we thank you for the Apostle Peter. We thank you for the, for the tradition, the history, the doctrine, the teaching he left for us. And Father, may your Spirit, uh, may your Spirit take this book, and as we go through it, as we look into it, as uh, that we would be diligent to understand what, uh, what, what you had for us through Peter, and that we might apply it to our lives. Uh, we might be aware of what is going on around us in the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves, uh, that we would be confident to stand firm against those who would teach error, and we would thank you, and we would praise you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.